Hi, it's Katrina. We're going to be talking about the filibuster. Oh, no, not the filibuster. And we're going to start with Gridlock and Senate Rules by John C. Roberts. Introduction. Our assignment in this symposium is to explore the role that legal issues play in what is popularly known as gridlock in Washington. I am tempted to declare the symposium over by arguing that there are no such relevant legal issues, that our problems are really political and ideological, not stemming from any legal or constitutional deficiencies. But that would be too easy. There are legal deficits which contribute to our current frustration, even if we may ultimately conclude that they are symptoms and not causes of gridlock. It is certainly true that the federal government is in a period of extreme dysfunction. We see it in conflicts between the president and the Congress over appointments and long-range fiscal policy. We especially see it in the inability of the House and Senate to cooperate on urgently needed legislative priorities. Year after year, budget resolutions and appropriation bills are not passed in a timely fashion, and often not at all. Measures dealing with major public issues die in the Senate. I want to focus in this paper on one of the most talked about elements of gridlock, the use of Senate rules and practices by the minority to block virtually any action unless it is supported by 60 senators. In the public discourse about paralysis in Washington, dysfunction in the Senate may be the most frequently cited cause. Some commentators have even suggested that the Senate now operates as a vetocracy, vetocracy. <laughs> and others like Mann and Ornstein have observed that changes in the Republican Party have brought about a laissez-faire focus on obstruction rather than cooperation on legislation. This is not the place for a deep analysis of the underlying causes of our political dysfunction, but there is agreement on some points. Rarely in our history have the two parties been more polarized. In the Republican Party, zealots have eliminated their traditional moderate to liberal legislators, and to a lesser extent, the Democratic Party is also more homogenous. As a result, as a striking chart in Mann and Orstein's recent book shows, there is no ideological overlap between the parties in the Senate. The most liberal Republican is still more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. As Gregory Warrow and Eric Schickler have observed, Party lines today correspond to policy preferences and ideology more tightly than at other times in our history. 
compromise across the aisle is virtually never obtained. Procedural holds by individual senators have proliferated on both legislation and nominations. The use of threatened use of the filibuster, extended debate used to block Senate action, has become commonplace, resulting in what is, in effect, a supermajority voting requirement for any legislative business. We can now see that convulsive events like the civil rights movement, the rise of the religious right, and the Gingrich Revolution of the 1990s have polarized the parties and reshuffled the voters, eliminating the kind of bipartisan cooperation we saw in the 1950s and 1970s. Perhaps more importantly, this realignment has been accompanied by a new rhetoric illustrated by the Tea Party faction of the Republican Party that characterizes the other party as not just misguided, but evil and immoral. Since legislating is difficult under the best of circumstances, portraying opponents in this Manchian way and viewing the policy process as a struggle between good and evil can have devastating effects. Washington now seems unable to deal with the pressing legal, economic, and social issues facing the country in the 21st century. Solving the larger problem of hyper-partisanship and good versus evil rhetoric is not part of my agenda, however. The more limited issue before us is whether there are changes in laws or congressional procedures which can ease governmental gridlock and make it more likely that important policy issues can be addressed successfully. My focus is on the United States Senate and more particularly on the Senate's unusual rules and traditions which cluster around the right of extended debate. Many critics see this aspect of the Senate resulting in a 60-vote requirement for any meaningful action as the crucial element in what we call gridlock. They point to the large increase in the use or threat of filibusters in recent years and the routine filing of closure motions. As evidence of a crisis in the Senate, they decry the procedural arms race that has resulted as the majority resorts to parliamentary tools designed to curtail minority rights, like early cloture filing and filing the amendment tree. Filling the amendment tree even though I contend that the abuse of the legislative hold and the right of extended debate are merely symptoms of gridlock, not causes. I propose to analyze these issues from a legal perspective and ask whether anything can and should be done to make the Senate more functional. Summary of argument. I take as my text... 
for this paper, Congressional Scholar Stephen Smith's insightful use of the term procedural fragility to describe the Senate's parliamentary culture. The Senate is procedurally, procedurally fragile in the sense that the body's special traditions of extreme individualism, deference to other members, and procedural looseness make it especially vulnerable to members who would take advantage or, some say, the opportunities for obstruction thus created. The Senate has sometimes in the past operated on a cooperative basis across party lines, but the political polarization and demonization of opponents' ideas we see today can be fatal in a body like the Senate, whose rules and traditions allow for and even invite obstruction. Many critics argue that the only solution for the Senate's woes is to enforce a strict regime of majority rule, under which a simple majority's policy preferences must always prevail. The goal of pure majoritarianism, however, is fanciful. We must remember that the Senate itself is anti-majoritarian by design since each state has two senators, bills can and often do pass with the support of members representing a small minority of the nation's voters. Moreover, the Senate's enactment process, like that of most legislative bodies, includes numerous bottlenecks that may prevent a majority from being from bringing a bill to the floor for a vote. Leadership authority, respect for committee autonomy, and the unrepresentativeness of committee membership, to name only a few. The tradition of extended debate and the hold are merely the most prominent of these obstacles, but they are the most difficult for the majority to overcome. I argue that the Constitution demands something much more profound, ultimate majority control. By that, I mean the power of a simple majority of members present to adopt or amend rules governing the day-to-day business of the Senate at any time. Under this principle, the filibuster itself is not unconstitutional. If a majority of senators wish to allow it for institutional reasons, nor are supermajority voting rules themselves unconstitutional because the majority may find them useful to ensure consensus on certain kinds of issues. The same is true for all of the other procedural obstacles, like a sticky committee system and the prerogatives of the majority. of the majority leader. So long as a simple majority may decide at any time to amend or repeal such rules or informal practices, the Constitution is not violated. 
even if the so-called constitutional option to end debate on a rules change by the majority voters exercised, as I advocate, it seems clear that the Senate would probably continue to operate under some of its current rules, such as the cloture rule, and would continue to tolerate certain kinds of holds and extend debate. But at least under the principle of ultimate majority control, members would have the power to modernize these rules and traditions to reduce their minority veto effect and thus make the Senate a more functional legislative body. It would be, in other words, less procedurally fragile. It would be able to counter more effectively the unreasoning obstructionism that has become commonplace. I will consider what some of these changes might be later on. Most important, the clear establishment in Senate rules and procedures of the principle of ultimate majority control would constrain the minority from abusing its prerogatives because of the ever-present threat that the majority would further curtail them. Under my analysis, then, there is only one provision of the Senate's current standing rules that offends legal norms, and that is the language of Rule 22, which requires a vote of two-thirds of members present and voting to end debate on a motion to amend those same rules. If the majority could establish its authority under the Constitution to change Senate rules at any time, some of the minority veto features of the modern Senate could be eliminated or modified. Gridlock might not be eliminated completely since its roots are not legal or constitutional, but rather political and ideological. But at least the Senate would be better armed to resist the worst abuses we see today. The roots of today's 60-vote Senate lie in its structure, traditions, and culture. The framers viewed the two houses of Congress as having very different functions, and they developed very different cultures. The House with younger members elected every two years was intended to reflect the views of the people more directly and to be an active legislative body. The Senate, elected by state legislatures and representing the states, was designed as a small elite chamber with longer terms of office staggered for stability. It would function more like a more experienced older brother to the rambunctious House of Representatives, dampening the political ex the policy excesses of the other body. In its early years, the Senate met in secret and did not originate much legislation. Then, as now, the Senate was viewed as more prestigious, as the more prestigious body, and senators were usually the most experienced political leaders of the states who knew each other well. The early Senate was quite small and remained so for much of the 19th century. From the outset, the Senate developed an unusual culture, 
reflecting its small size and special function, a sense of the intimacy of the early Senate can be gained from viewing the old Senate chamber of the in the Capitol. The entire membership could meet comfortably in a small dining room since it had a limited agenda. The Senate could afford to operate far more informally than the House. It had a very brief set of procedural rules and from the beginning often waived or ignored the ones it had. Instead, senators relied on their personal relationships with one another and a strong deference to the needs and desires of each member. There was a patrician sense of courtesy and institutional pride, and over time the Senate's precedents and traditions were a strong force for stability. The atmosphere was that of an exclusive private club. Several parliamentary traditions emerged in the Senate, but were rejected in the House because of its larger size and greater workload. These included the right of each senator to be recognized by the chair before a vote was taken, a powerful tool since modified by the majority leader's right of preferential recognition. Senators also had the right to introduce unlimited numbers of amendments, and there was no germaneness rule for either debate or amendments. These usually loose procedures drastically limited the majority's agenda control, since the minority could always introduce their amendments and could bypass committees by introducing entirely new bills as amendments to unrelated legislation. Later, the Senate was also characterized by a strong seniority system and a tradition of apprenticeship under which new members deferred to their elders on both substance and procedure. In its routine daily work, the modern Senate often waives or modifies many of its standing rules and traditions, relying heavily on unanimous consent, agreements to control the sequence of votes, and amendments leading to passage of a measure. Congressional scholars agree that the filibuster, the right of extended debate to obstruct action, did not exist in the early Senate. At the beginning, its standing rules included a motion for the previous question, which could be employed to end debate and bring a matter to vote. It was used and was deleted from the rules at the suggestion of Vice President Burr during a revision of the rules in 1806. From that time until 1917, there was no parliamentary device to end debate in the Senate. One might wonder how the Senate ever voted on controversial measures in the absence of a formal mean, means to end debate. The answer, of course, lies in the Senate's culture and traditions. Throughout the 19th century, members occasionally engaged in extended debate but rarely for purposes of simple obstruction. 
Given its size and relatively light workload, the body could afford to wait out the minority and a vote was eventually taken. The first real filibuster for purposes of obstruction did not occur until the 1820s. Gregory Coger, using contemporary newspaper accounts, traces the breakdown of this informal system to the convulsive period from 1870 to 1917 when Congress's workload increased dramatically and partisan divisions were intense. Coupled with many additional senators from new states, these factors vastly increased the importance of members' time and made the filibuster a much more dangerous parliamentary weapon. Scholars have noted that the cloture rule was little used in the decades after its adoption in 1917. However, illustrating the continuing power of the Senate's cooperative culture, there was actually more obstruction in the House in the 19th century, though it usually took the form of dilatory motions and failures to answer during quorum calls, changes pushed through by House Speaker Reed in the 1890s brought about the strict majority rule institution we see today. Throughout the Senate's history, there has been often tenuous balance, an often tenuous balance between the right of individual senators to exploit its traditions of extended debate, and unlimited amendments. In the powerful traditions of cooperation, deference to leaders, and institutional loyalty. Restraint in the use of obstructive practices arose from recognition of the Senate's procedural fragility. Every senator realized that under its loose rules, chaos would result if each senator fully exploited his rights and that each senator's own pet bills were vulnerable to reciprocal obstruction. Between 1917 and 1960, filibusters were rare and by common assent reserved for extremely important measures. The unspoken pact counseling restraint started to break down in the 1960s when Southern conservatives filibustered civil rights legislation and Northern liberals began to realize that extended debate could be used on their issues as well. Many scholars mark the end of this old-fashioned Senate to the election of 1980 when Republicans took control and partisan polarization became more evident. Full-blown obstruction was much more common starting in 1992, but the system had actually began to break down after the 1970s. Reforms that reduced the power of seniority and encouraged members to challenge entrenched authority in the Senate 
my own experience in the late 1970s as general counsel for a major Senate committee was that the t- traditional culture was starting to deteriorate. Senators sometimes ignored unwritten rules like informing committee chairs in advance of amendments and refusal to agree to unanimous consent agreements became more common. Under my chairman, John Stennis, the Armed Services Committee operated with a single staff serving both parties and observed the traditions of courtesy and individual rights that had long held sway. After the 1980 election brought a Republican majority, Senator John Tower became chairman, the staff was split, and the atmosphere became much more partisan. Ira Shapiro, in his recent book, Thus Marks 1980 as the End of the Last Great Senate, and of the norm of bipartisan cooperation. Not only have we seen a large increase in the threat of filibusters in the modern era, and a corresponding use of cloture as a commonly used majority tactic, but the abusive use of the legislative hold has also emerged. There had been long There had long been a tradition rooted in the Senate's respect for each member's rights of accommodating the request of a senator on the floor to delay a measure briefly for further study or consultation with the sponsor. Since agenda control was far less centralized, it made sense for the majority to accede to such requests. Sometimes in the 1970s, however, This practice changed into something entirely different. The request to delay consideration of a bill or nomination was often communicated to the leaders in secret, and the hold carried no time limit. Furthermore, holds lost their legitimate focus on the substance of legislation and were increasingly used to retaliate against another senator extort concessions from the leaders on other bills or even force specific specific actions by the executive branch. Moreover, holes were sometimes entered against large numbers of the bills or nominations at the same time. Since the whole was increasingly interpreted as a threat to withhold unanimous consent, To proceed to a measure, it operated as a stealth filibuster without the need to debate the question or even reveal the identity of the obstructing member. Though the system was entirely voluntary and not set out in Senate rules, the vast increase in the use of holes has been a lightning rod for criticism, which has been correctly joined with criticism of the filibuster generally. With this brief review of the history and culture of the Senate, the question is then posed, can the Senate afford to continue with its traditions of extended debate, deference to desires of of individual members, and loose parliamentary rules 
in a period of crushing national problems, hyperpartisanship, and lack of cooperation between parties, or must it recognize that its old ways of doing business simply cannot continue in a period of partisan gridlock with the, when the majority is often willing to stand together to block any action desired by the majority or the president. The House followed a similar road as Coger has noted. Obstruction was first possible but rare, then became commonplace, raising the cost to the body. Finally, in the 1890s, the situation became intolerable and the Reed rules tightened majority control. Can the Senate become more of a majority rule body like the House, but without losing its unique character and the special role it has played in our legislative system? If change is to come about, its proponents must first confront the procedural hurdle of the cloture rule, which requires that two-thirds of those present and voting agree in order to end the debate on a change in the standing rules.